What's your story? If we were to sit down and have coffee or lunch, and maybe we didn't know each other very well, and I ask you to give, give me a summary of your life, a couple sentences, what would you tell me? What's your story? What would your friends tell me if we were walking around out here in the hallway and I said, tell me about them. What would they say? We've never met Naaman before as we were reading through First and Second Kings. This is our first introduction to him. And the writer of Second Kings does us the privilege of trying to summarize his life in a couple of sentences. We hear about uh, the respect that he has from important leaders. We hear of his accomplishments. We hear of his power, his status, probably his wealth. We get this glowing resume of Naaman. But then all of a sudden, with one simple phrase, a, a corner is turned. And everything that has come before seems to pale in comparison. All of those glowing points in his story are overshadowed by the last phrase, Naaman was a mighty warrior, but he had leprosy. All of his accolades seem meaningless. He can't get together with friends and celebrate all of his accomplishments because he has to stay separate. This giant monument made by one little phrase is in front of him, but he had leprosy. And I wonder this morning, is there a monument like this in your story? Is there one phrase that comes up time and time again that seems to overshadow everything else? It stands in front of you and you can't go around it. You can't seem to knock it down. You can't go through it. It colors everything that everyone knows about you, or maybe it just colors the way you see yourself. If that's your experience, Naaman's story may be instructive. And so let's walk on the journey with Naaman together for a few minutes. But let me start with a warning. As I read this story a few times, I found myself falling into a trap that might be easy to fall into. I see that thing in front of me that I want torn down, that I want God to do something about. And I see myself reading Naaman's story like a checklist. If I do this like he did, and I do this like he did, and I do this like he did, then at the end of the checklist, everything will be fixed. That's not what this is. But if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, the Spirit may have some things to tell us about those monuments that are in our lives. As we dive into the story of Naaman, there's a turn right away. There's a voice of hope, and it comes from an unusual place. If you missed it, you see this young girl who isn't even named in the story. Not only is she young, not only is she female, both that put her at a disadvantage, She's also a prisoner of war and now a slave in Naaman's household. She is at the farthest edge of the margins. If Naaman is making a list of people who might be able to help him with his problem, she's not on it. 
But she gathers the courage. She goes to her mistress and she says, there's a prophet in Samaria. And I really believe if Naaman could get to that prophet, he could be healed. And this powerful man must be at the end of his rope because he listens. He pays attention. He goes to visit his king. And there are times when I wonder, is it our tendency to only listen to people with the right clout? People who have prestige or they're experts or they've put in the time and I respect that. And we miss those voices from unusual places. Don't misunderstand me. There are people who have put a lot of time and study and effort, and we listen to those people. But there are also times when there are people who are listening to God well, and God speaks. And will we have ears to hear and the humility to listen to someone on the margins who points us to a solution that only God can give? This young girl had no experience. She didn't know any about leprosy. She's not a doctor. She's not a, she doesn't specialize in skin disorders. But she knows she wants Naaman to be healed. She believes that Yahweh can heal him. And she knows that there's a prophet in Israel. And to Naaman's credit, he listens. Do we have people around us who are listening to God well. And do we have the humility to listen to them? Naaman goes to visit his king. It's the next right step. He goes to see his boss. He goes to get permission to go to Israel and visit this prophet. The king writes a note it's interesting what that note says. Did you catch it? And who the note is to? Who is the note to? The king of Israel, not to the prophet. Aram's king sends Naaman to Israel's king. Interesting. Now, there are probably politics involved. It's probably a bad idea for one of Aram's primary warriors to come rolling into Israel, crossing the border, unbeknownst to Israel's king. That might start some problems between the two kingdoms. So he goes to the king, but what the note said is also interesting. Did you catch it? It says, here's my servant Naaman. Heal him. Free him from this disease. And rightfully so, the king of Israel looks at this note and tears his robe and starts to panic. He thinks Aram's king is up to some Game of Thrones type stuff here. He's trying to pick a fight. He's trying to start something. And he, and he says something that I think is key to this story. He says, am I God that I'm supposed to give life and take it away? You see, it's fascinating that you've got this power play. You've got these three men with extreme amounts of power 
they're used to controlling their destiny. When they see something that needs to be done, they do it. They take care of it. They solve it. They fix it. Naaman goes to his king. His king sends him to another king. And you all of a sudden realize that these three men with all their power have nothing of any use for Naaman's problem. And to move forward, they have to put it aside. Now, it's easy for some of us to look at that story and say, yeah, those crazy people with power, right? Am I right? But all of us tend to fall into this trap. We control our own lives. We fix it. We keep it to ourselves. We don't bring other people in. Any control freaks in the room, can I get an amen? I'm gonna do it. And so we bring other people in who are fixers and we try to solve it. And until we can put those things away, we miss the work of God. There are times when we are called to put those things down in humility and surrender and say, God, I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. I'm going to need you. Elisha gets word of the king's panic and sends another note. All these notes are fascinating if you pay attention to them. The note that Elijah sends says, send Naaman to me. For what purpose? Did you catch it? So that Naaman can know that there is a true prophet in Israel. The note didn't say, send Naaman to me so I can cure him of his leprosy. So it said, send Naaman to me so that he can know that there's a true prophet in Israel. We'll come back to that. Keep that in the back of your mind. I love the next part of this story though. If you think the Bible doesn't have comedy, pay attention. Because this is hilarious. Naaman has got an entourage. He's got horses and chariots. If you look at the passage, he is carrying gifts, money, he is decked out to the hilt and he comes rolling up to Elisha's door with this huge entourage. He is letting everyone in town know that someone with power and significance and wealth has entered and you should pay attention. And when he gets to Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't even come outside. He sends out his servant. and tells Naaman to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman has shown up at Elijah's house expecting a show. Let's just be real. He kind of says it in the text. He's expecting fire and smoke and flowery words and a big show, maybe altars and burnt offerings. At least some wisdom from this sage. And when he shows up, all Elisha says is go take a bath. Put it into context. 
Imagine that some head of state has asked you for help. They are an important person. And they show up at your house with limousines and a military convoy and all of their representatives. And you send out your 12-year-old son to tell him to go jump in a lake. That's what just happened here. And it's easy for me. Over the years, I've read this story over and over and over again. And I always look at Naaman and I judge him a little bit. Can we be real? I'm like, Elisha gave you something easy to do, man. You're going to be healed if you just go jump in the river. Come on, put down your pride. But as I think, as I put myself in Naaman's spot, one, I'm a little insulted. Two, I have just come to this prophet with my biggest need, my biggest fear, my biggest weakness. I've opened myself up to ridicule. I am hopeless and I've put myself at this person's mercy and I feel like he's wasted my time. I walk away and I say, my problem is bigger than that. My problem, the solution to my problem is not that simple. Please don't mishear me when I say this. But is it possible that those monuments in our lives, those things that are in front of us, when they're held in front of God, they might not be as big as we think they are? If you're a parent, you've experienced this one of your kids comes home from school and something has happened that day and they're distraught. They're overwhelmed. They're in middle school and their boyfriend or their girlfriend has broken up with them and it is the end of the world. And you know that in a couple of days, they're gonna overcome. It's not to minimize the pain that they feel. You just have more experience, a different perspective. And you look at that struggle and you love them and you care for them and you validate them. But you know in a few days, they'll be past it. And whether we like to admit it or not, even those huge things in our lives, from God's perspective, aren't necessarily as big as we think they are. And somehow, Elisha looks at Naaman's story and discerns that when God is involved, Elisha's leprosy isn't as significant as Naaman thinks. And so Naaman walks away angry. He's ready to go home. He's probably hopeless. He's upset. Maybe he's throwing in the towel. And luckily, he's got some good friends around him who pull him aside and they say, 
What can it hurt? You came ready to give this guy a fortune. You came ready to do any crazy thing he asked you to do. And all he has said is go wash in the Jordan River. Just give it a shot. And I wonder if there are times in our lives when some of the things that seem like giant monuments in front of us, we know there are some simple things to do that aren't always easy. That person who takes up all of our mental energy because of something they've done, they've wronged us in some way, and we're losing sleep over it, and they've not given a second thought to you. And I talk to a trusted friend, and they say, you've got to forgive them. It's a one-sentence answer. But it's not easy. I keep falling into these same traps, these same mistakes over and over and over again. And I ask somebody for advice and they say, you need some trusted friends who you can tell and who can hold you accountable and who can encourage you and challenge you along the way. It's a one sentence answer. It's simple. But it's so not easy. And I wonder if there are times that if our problem is so simply solved, it feels like it lessens the pain I feel. It minimizes it. And sometimes those monuments that are in front of us can start to become idols. We start to look at them and they take up all of our thought life. They overwhelm everything about us. They become the most important thing. And we lose sight of everything else. And again, Naaman, to his credit, listens to his friends. It's an interesting recurring theme with him, isn't it? If you learn anything from Naaman, learn that. He is constantly listening and submitting to those people around him who are speaking hope and truth. He goes to the Jordan River, and like we saw in the video, he dunks himself seven times. I hope he did it that fast. I hope that's what it looked like. I hope he did a backflip. Because when he came up out of the water, he was healed. His monument was torn down. The text says his skin is like a baby skin. This is new birth. He comes out of the water the last time and, the, and God has changed him. He has new life. A new way forward. His life is forever changed. God is in the healing business and continues to heal. And friends, we can hear that today. God is still in the business of healing. And that's wonderful. I don't want you to miss it. It can be rote when we've heard Bible stories all of our lives. But as I read this passage this week, I realized that the healing wasn't even the point. The healing wasn't the point. 
It's great, but that's not the point. Do you remember Elisha's note to the king? He said, send Naaman here. Why? So that he can see there's a true prophet in Israel. After Naaman comes out back out of the water, he returns to Elisha's house. And did you catch what he says? He says, now I know that there is no God except the God of Israel. See, somehow, early on, Elisha has discerned that Naaman's primary problem is not leprosy. Naaman's problem is that he doesn't know God. Naaman's problem is that throughout his life, God has been at work. God has been writing all of his story. And time and time again, Naaman hasn't seen it. Naaman doesn't know God. And so when the monument comes, Naaman has no frame of reference, has nowhere to turn, has no hope. God has been in the business of revealing himself to all people throughout the scriptures. As we've looked at story after story from the Old Testament this summer, we've seen God revealing himself to all peoples the story of Abraham and Jacob and Esther and Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. God continually reveals himself over and over and over again. And I find it fascinating that this is one of the stories in the Old Testament that Jesus refers to during his ministry. We don't see him do that a lot, but he does it with this story. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized. He's come up out of the water. He's gone to the wilderness for his testing, his temptation. He's come back from the wilderness. He started his ministry. And one of the places he goes early on is back to his hometown of Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue. He opens the scroll and he reads from the book of Isaiah. He reads a passage about good news for the poor, about healing, about hope, about freedom. And the people that he's grown up with are amazed at the gracious vocabulary of this man. The hope that spews forth. And they look at him and they say, oh, look, there's little Jesus. Isn't he cute? Remember when he used to run around here with Joseph? And Jesus discerns that the people of Nazareth want to see him do some miracles. One, because they probably want him to prove himself. And two, because there's probably a little bit of, you know, you've been doing miracles other places. We're your people, man. Throw some of those miracles our way. And it's in the midst of this conversation that Jesus points back to two Old Testament stories. He reminds him of the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath that Pastor Matt preached about a couple weeks ago. And he reminds them of this story of Elisha and Naaman. And he says, pay attention, friends. Because during the time of Elisha and Naaman, there were probably people all across Israel 
who had leprosy. But God has shown favor to Naaman, who is not an insider. He's not part of the covenant people. He's not one of the promised children of Abraham. God reveals himself and shows his favor to all people. Jesus says, when I read Isaiah and I say that there is good news and freedom and hope, that it is not just for you, religious people. It is for everyone. And this really makes the people of Nazareth mad. They literally want to throw Jesus off a cliff because we have a tendency when we start to build our religion, we have a tendency to build up walls and try to keep God's favor to ourselves. And God is constantly in the business of revealing himself to people who seem on the outside. One commentator beautifully reminded us of this, that Jesus did not go to the outsiders because he was rejected by his people. He was rejected by his people because he went to the outsiders. And there are times when I read the story of Naaman that I think about the monuments in my life and I want God to do something about them. But I might look at the monuments in somebody else's life. Yeah, I'm not sure God should do anything about that. Because you see, their monument, they built it. Mine was put on me. Their monument is there because their sins are so heinous. I should be freed from mine. Mine should be torn down because, sure, I've got sin now. Everybody's got sin. But mine's not as bad. And if we listen to God well through the story of Naaman, we can't help but see that we serve a God who is gracious and generous even more than maybe sometimes we want him to be. Friends, God wants abundant life for us, for all of us. Do you want your story to change? Give some attention to the author. Spend time with the creator. Learn to live a reverent life, paying attention to the work of God in all things, in all places, at all times. The story of Naaman starts in the first few verses. I don't know if you caught it or not, but when the author begins to tell Naaman's story, the author connects all of Naaman's accomplishes to the work of Yahweh. Yahweh has been at work in Naaman's life even before Naaman recognized God was there. 
And so often we get caught up looking at our monument that's become an idol. And we miss the work of God in all of the other places in our lives. We miss the blessings. We miss living lives of gratitude. And instead, focus on this one thing that we want God to change. Friends, Naaman was healed. And sometimes God gives us that. Sometimes not. But when we can pay attention, when we can listen, when we sit with the Savior who wants abundant life for us, those monuments don't look nearly as big when we're looking at them with the God who moves mountains.